This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. Hop, hop, hooray. Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. Every time you bend your wrist, every time you shake your head, you can thank these creatures living in Devonian ecosystems 375 million years ago. And we know that because we can trace the fossil evidence all the way back to that time. So this fish tells us a lot about how animals took the first steps on land. But more, even more importantly, and I, honestly, in my opinion, more, you know, be- more beautifully, um, is that it connects to us, that there's part of our history locked inside of these fish. That's paleontologist Neil Shubin. He not only made one of the most exciting discoveries linking us to our far distant ancestors, he also has a great time telling the rest of us about his discovery. His most recent book is Some Assembly Required. It's a spirited journey through some four billion years of evolution. This is so great to be talking to you, Neil, because you not only have made these groundbreaking discoveries, you, you're a great communicator. I, I just, I love your books. I love the way you talk. You're a good talker. Oh, thank you so much. I do a lot of it. <laughs> I have a lot of practice. <laughs> but it's so it's so nice to hear your enthusiasm expressed and you have an ear to what we're hearing when we listen to you. You tell stories, you engage us. I love that. Well, thank you. I sometimes read uh, in an account of your work. The account starts off, he'll never forget the day and right away, you know you're in for a great story, right? This is the, that's the phrase you want to hear from, from a scientist, the story of the day when you found Tiktaalik. Yeah, so it was six years leading to that day, which is what made it so special. I mean, we, we had, um, what we did was uh, we were interested in one of the great events in the history of life, which is the transition from fish to land-living animal. And we were on the hunt for a fossil fish that might tell us a lot about that, ideally a fossil fish with arms and legs lungs and gills, that sort of thing. And so we had, set, we had identified rocks in the Canadian Arctic that would had the, they were the right age, you know, to hold a fossil like Which that. Which was how, right, old, how old was the age? 
375 million years old. So we're talking well before the age of dinosaurs, and our distant ancestors were still in the water at this point. And it turns out the Canadian Arctic is loaded with wonderful rocks, uh, you know, the right kind, the right age. You just have to find the right places where they'd be exposed to the surface, or they're not covered by ice, or what have you. You know, that Um, was so interesting to me in your book. You're, You're looking for this missing link between our ancestors that swam and the ones that could crawl around on on the earth. And instead of looking right away, the first, instead of looking first for the fossils, you had to find the right rocks. That's correct. That that never would have occurred to me. That's that's probably basic in your work. Well, it is. I mean, you learn the language of the rocks. You know, you learn, um, there's, you know, it's it's like reading a book. Once you know how to read a rock, you can tell about the ancient world, you know? Um, That's what it is. and, uh, you know, that's what I tell my students. you got to learn to read the rock. You learn to – each grain is like a, a letter in the alphabet. Um, you know, the, the color of the rock is, is – is, it tells you so much about how it was formed. So when you learn that, you know, how to see inside a rock the, what the world looked like, it becomes a time machine, you know. And, um, and we identified up in the Canadian Arctic the perfect kinds of environments, ancient environments that we'd find these critters in. So how long did you spend looking among these rocks – Six years, six summers. <laughs> you spent six summers living in a tent in the Arctic, and then one one day, the special day, what happened? Well, we had found a layer of rock that had fossils in it, a lot of fossils, a lot of fish fossils, and uh, we were cracking. The team was cracking them, and one of my cracking the rocks, and one of my colleagues, Steve, who was about ten feet away from me at the time said, hey, guys, what's this? I'm like, oh, okay, that sounds interesting. Steve didn't usually talk in the quarry. He was a very intense worker. So when Steve talked, we all paid attention. <laughs> so he said, hey, guys, what's this? So we ran, I ran over there, and I saw sticking out of the rock was the snout of a fish. Um, and it had teeth. It had jaws. And I could just see the snout. But I knew from the second I saw that snout, we had found what we had spent six years looking for. And the reason for that, it was a snout of a fish, clearly a fish. It had like the texture of a fish bone, but it was a flat-headed animal. And we knew from our previous research that we were, were, going, we were looking for a flat-headed fish. Because like, that something was, that looked like an alligator, you mean? That flat, yeah, like, that? like a crocodile, alligator kind of head. And here I had, looking at me, literally poking out of the rock, <laughs> you know, a flat-headed fish. And, you know, basically I couldn't believe my eyes and uh, it was, and everybody came over, we high-fived and then we said, oh no, (laughs) we had about 10 minutes to celebrate because a storm was rolling in. That's in this part of the Arctic, you know, storms come ripping in off the glaciers. And uh, so we had to move pretty fast to preserve it. uh, And it took us another two weeks to remove it. Um, and after we removed it, we found subsequently have found 20 more of these up there. Wow. And I, yeah, so they turned out not to be horribly, terribly rare. Um, but that was an amazing moment. It was, you know, vindication of six years of work. It was relief, honestly. It was joy that we were going to learn something new about this great transition. You know, here we had, you know, in the rock, something that was going to tell us something about the you know, one of the great events in the history of life. You know, it hit us at so many levels. So what was it about it? What was, the, what was it about that particular fish that was so important in making the transition to everything that's on land? So this is one of the first creatures to have um, arm bones like ours. So it has inside its fin. When we, when, we, in the, when we brought it back into the lab, we took the fin apart and we were able to see it has an upper arm bone like us, a humerus. It has forearm bones, radius and ulna, like us. It has a wrist with similar bones, like us. 
even has little stubs of, of fingers inside a fin, which has the fin webbing and it's covered with scales. So this is a fish that already has a number of features of our own bodies. So the wrist we see for the first time in this fish living 375 million years ago, this neck we see for the first time you know, in our lineage in 375 million years ago, these are features that are, relate to us. You know, so every time you bend your wrist, every time you shake your head, <laughs> you can thank these creatures living in Devonian ecosystems 375 million years ago. And we know that because we can trace the fossil evidence all the way back to that time. So this fish tells us a lot about how animals took the first steps on land. But more, even more importantly, and I, honestly, in my opinion, more, you know, be more beautifully, um, is that it connects to us, that there's part of our history locked inside of these fish. The question comes up, how did all of these different formations of the body, the bones, the wrist, the neck, the lung, the fingers, the, the little stubby, what does a fish need a finger for? That, that, that's, what, that's what I can't get. How did, it help? How did, how did these little pro, proto-fingers help it survive in its own environment? Well, when you think about what these fish are specialized for doing, is they have lungs to gulp air, but while they still live in water. You know, lungs were around in fish well before creatures took their first steps on land. So that sounds counterintuitive. Totally. Why, would a, why would a fish need a lung? Or any kind of lung. Yeah, so fish um, will have lungs. Uh, they'll have both lungs and gills. So they'll use the gills when you know, the oxygen content of the water is high. When the oxygen content of the water is low or their metabolic needs are very high, a number of fish that have lungs will go to the surface and take gulps of air. So lungs are sort of a useful sort of accessory organ, you know, sort of like a secondary organ to breathe with, which many fish have. In fact, many primitive fish have. And so lungs were already on the scene. Um, and all these traits, whether it's wrists and stubby fingers and elbows, which we see in these fish, or, or lungs, these are fish that are specialized to live in the interface between water and land. So a creature living in water with arm bones and little stubby fingers can do a push-up, can support itself on the water bottom, or even maneuver to the water shallows or the mud flats. What these traits do is they allow creatures to walk, they allow creatures to breathe air, which gives them a range of flexibility that their ancestors really didn't have. There were food sources on land. There were no competitors on land. There were no predators on land. It was just a world of opportunity, honestly. What about the transition before Tiktaalik to Tiktaalik? Is there a missing link there that you're going to start looking for? Yeah, well, as they say, every time you find one missing link, you create two gaps in the fossil record. So yeah. um, there are fish with arm bones elsewhere in the world. Um, that are sort of deeper in time. We're now working in Antarctica, um, where there are great rocks uh, in the Transantarctic Mountains. They push up through the ice. Antarctica wasn't always a cold continent. This is when it was a rainforest. <laughs> We're working in Antarctica to find them. And you do have, before this creature, you do have fish with arms, and, and, but they don't have the wrists. You know, they don't have a neck. So they're sort of partially there, but not complete. It's just what you'd expect, actually. You have creatures with an upper arm bone, but no wrists. Let's put it that way. So the question in my mind always is, what is there about that stage of development that aids them to escape predators, to to get better food or better mating conditions or whatever it is? What is there about 
that thing that doesn't allow them to walk yet, but what do they do? They slither along better or what? Oh, I think they're doing proto walking actually. Huh. So they're able to. They, so if you ha- look at these fins, these fins are are big. They can swim with, but they have enough flexion in them that if you're living in the water, remember walking in water doesn't require as much stuff mm. as walking on land because you don't have the force of gravity working the same way. So what we're thinking is that animals, fish, are playing with kinds of kinds of walking before our kind of walking came about in water. So when you think about a fish living in water, it's, you know, mostly, you know, they're buoyant in water. So they don't have to have an appendage that can support the full weight of the body, right? So we think in that context, these fish are actually experimenting with new ways of walking on the water bottom, not on land. And, you know, you're seeing this happen gradually. It didn't happen in one fell swoop. You know, walking was, you know, a series of, of, of features, of innovations or novelties that came up, involved a series of novelties that came about over, you know, many millions of years. You know, it's a long process. Interesting. Once they came out of the soup, they started forming into different species. Mm-hmm. Very much so. That's where they got a whole new bunch of competitors and predators. Yeah, they made their own. <laughs> you know? That's right. So, so the um, worst kind of fight is a family fight. <laughs> and that's what we've been living with ever since. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you could say that same story with other evolutionary transitions. It's not just about the transition from water to land. You know, you could say the same thing about the transition from reptile to bird. You know, feathers arose well before creatures you know, took their first flaps to fly. And, and the idea is the feathers didn't appear... In order to help a bird fly, right? That's what, correct. What was the they, point of feathers before that? Either thermoregulation, you know, they're great insulation, as we all know from, you know, from, from, from walking around in winter in the East Coast or Midwest, uh, but also for courtship displays, which a lot, of, um, a lot of creatures use them for, for coloration patterns, for behavioral patterns. Whatever they were using them for was clearly not flight, because we see them already in dinosaurs, which were land-living creatures. They weren't flying at all. So they didn't, uh, they didn't appear because we needed down pillows. <laughs> they needed they needed the down pillows. I think that's why they got them. <laughs> I've read in your wonderful book, Some Assembly Required, you talk about how you got a hint about how all this works from the writer Lillian Hellman, from what she said before the House on American Activities Committee. They sound like far flung positions to connect. Well, see, I'm writing this book about like, how nothing in evolution happens when you think it did. Like, if you thought, like, lungs arose when creatures took the first steps on land, uh, you'd be in good company. If you thought that feathers arose when creatures took their first, you know, flaps to fly, you'd be in good company. You'd also be wrong. Everything arose before. So, while I was writing the book, I was actually taking a break from the writing. I was reading, you know, other things. I was reading biographies and autobiographies. And I came across Lillian Hellman's autobiography, and, you know, she had some hard-living ways. And um, in looking at her own life, which is almost as complex as the fossil record in some ways, <laughs> um, she, uh, she said, nothing, of course, ever begins when you think it does. And I remember reading that like, in her book. I'm like, that goes in my book. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Let me ask you a question. You bring to mind a communication question. I often see the shift, the kind of shift you're talking about, the transformation, like from fish to land animals. I often see that referred to as an invention of nature, and that worries me a little bit. Does it ever worry you that that, that leads to an anthropomorphing of, yeah. of nature itself? 
Yeah, we have to be careful with these terms. Um, so there's two terms that fall into that category. The first is invention, because it implies an inventor. Mm. And then really, we don't. You know, the inventor is you know, random chance and natural selection. It's, that's what shapes our world. So there's no inventor. So you can have an invention. We're talking about inventions without an inventor. And the same concept, you know, people oftentimes use the word design. You know, and design, again, implies a designer. And when they use it in an evolutionary context, or like mine, a historical context, um, we really don't mean that. We don't mean that there's a designer. The designer is evolution. It's not a, a, you know, a conscious, uh, you know, a intelligent designer, if you will. And so those two terms can get you into trouble. You know? And so we can call them novelties sometimes is what the term will use, something mm-hmm. new. Mm-hmm. You know, so something could be a novelty, something new, you know, something, something different without having an inventor. So I tend to use the word more often than not novelty, innovation. You know, and you can have an innovation without an innovator because these innovations can happen separately. Right. Um, so we have to find different words to do it, and it can be challenging. Right. One of the stories that you tell, I think, in that book is the day the news came out that you had discovered this missing link. And that day you were invited into your kid's classroom to talk about it, right? Yeah, my yeah, my son was five years old, and uh, I lived in fear of his. This is our first kid. I lived in fear of his teacher. She was very intimidating. <laughs> she was like, <laughs> you know, I'd go in there. Oh, she'd always criticize me. Yeah, Dad, your 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 kid's hat is on sideways. You know, get Dad, out, the really? backpack's too small. Oh, yeah, I would always get criticized. I'm like, okay, okay. Sorry, did, sorry. Did, she, I, did she leave your son alone and criticize <laughs> she you? Did. She did. <laughs> she turned out to be pretty good. She just had a thing on me. So anyway, she's like, Dad, you know, do that, do that, Dad, do that. Anyway, so one day. And it was pretty clear. This is before the announcement. It was clear we had a big thing happening, and I had told my son, and he told his friends, and I ended up telling the teacher. She said, she goes, one day, <laughs> Dad, can you bring the fossil to class? I'm like, uh, I can't bring the fossil to class, but I have a cast I can bring, you know, kind of like what I keep on my desk here. Yeah, yeah, um, great. And I, uh, <laughs> so I brought it into the kids in the class, you know, and I, and I showed it to them. And I love telling the story um, because, you know, this is the time when, you know, people were raging about evolution, that there are no transitional fossils in the fossil record. You know, there's a, a court case going on in Dover, Pennsylvania about this, right? And so here I had a transitional fossil that we had spent six years you know, looking for. And I'm showing it to the kids in this class. And they say, hey, guys, what do you think this is? And, you know, one could raise his hand and says, uh, um, Mr. Schubin, I think it's... Um, you know, I think it's fish. I said, well, why? Tell me. He said, see, it's got scales, and there's its fins. I could see its fins. A fish have that. I'm like, very good. Kid corrects him. He says, oh, no, 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 it's a crocodile. Look at that head. It's a flat head, and it's got these big teeth, and it's, you know, it can move its head around. I'm like, you're both right. <laughs> 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 it was like, it was perfect, because that was the story of a transitional fossil told by five-year-olds in a, you know, in a preschool. There must have been a light bulb going off over both their heads. That's great. Yeah, it was wonderful. And it was wonderful. And it was wonderful for me to see them working it, you know? And, you know, because they didn't know evolution or creationism or anything. They're working. What, what is this creature? Yeah. You know? And it was just so raw, so beautiful, so pure, you know? And I had to put that in the book. So what about tiktolic is such an unusual word it, did you name the fish after the town it was found in or what what where did that word come from what happened is we were working in the canadian arctic and we were working about 300 miles from an inuit community called grease fjord 175 inuit live there year round one of the northernmost communities on the planet and um, we found this thing and we knew it was going to be really important 
And we knew the Inuit were very important to us. They were, they, you know, we would work with them. We usually had one of the youth of the village as part of our expeditions. And a relationship, engaging the indigenous community was something that was really important to us. So we had a naming project with the Inuit community of elders um, in Nunavut. And uh, we had uh, two requirements for the name. The first requirement was a name that's meaningful to them and to us. And secondly, a name that we could pronounce because the, in, their language has a lot of consonants, consonants that we can't, that most people can't pronounce. And so we wanted something that's sort of general, most people can say it in some way, shape, or form. So they came up with the, the name, and the name means large freshwater fish in their language. Oh, great. It's perfect. Yeah, it really worked out really well. When we come back from our break, Neil Shubin tells me why salamanders deserve a lot of respect and why he finds writing about his science so exhilarating. Don't forget, if you enjoy listening to the fascinating guests we have on Clear and Vivid, you can help keep the flame alive by becoming a patron of the show. Clear and Vivid and the Alda Center for Communicating Science are both nonprofit. And your patronage of Clear and Vivid helps support them both. You can become a patron at any level and get early access to special videos. At the highest level, you can get fun and sometimes weird benefits, like my recording of your personalized voicemail message, either with courteous dignity or for the rambunctious among you, a message with a certain amount of attitude. Take a look at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. Patreon.com slash clear and vivid. And thank you. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet with faster speeds rolling out every day and internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. So while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary, and not guaranteed. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. Hop, hop, hooray. Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Neil Shubin. What is this with salamanders? You have an interest in salamanders? Is it connected to, uh, to this? Originally it was, yeah. I mean, so salamanders, they're these beautiful little creatures. They're just so gentle, honestly. One of the things, if you hold a salamander in your hand, you know, they, they, yes, they look slimy, some, a lot of them. Some don't. Some are more land-living. But they're just very gentle creatures. They don't bite. They don't do much. They, but they have these wonderful features. You know, some of them can flip their tongue the length of their body in a millisecond. Wow. 
Um, they're a beautiful laboratory for understanding evolution. That is, we can look at their development from egg to adult and see how subtle changes in that process of development can produce you know, changes in evolution, which are very important. They're like a wonderful model system for asking you know, many important questions you know, about uh, about how evolution works. And I fell in love with them just like a lot of things. I mean, sometimes a mentor means everything. And I had moved after I got my PhD to the University of California, and I uh, came in contact with David Wake, who is a world-renowned expert in evolution, particularly salamanders. And his enthusiasm for these creatures was so infectious. And it was just, I worked in the field with him once, and I'll never forget it. I, you know, just, I'm used to working in rocks and the Arctic and stuff. And, you know, here he is turning over logs and finding salamanders. And, you know, he was just this, he was like, I don't know, 65, 70 at the time. And it was like a kid. He was shaking. He was so excited. And I just got caught up in that in such a huge way. And then the science you know, the scientific things we can learn from them are, are became so clear. So, you know, that was just like, you know, about three decades ago, and I've never lost my passion for those critters so ever since. So what do you learn scientifically from them that's so useful? Yeah, so one of the great stories in science is, you know, where this um, Auguste Dumouriel, a uh, this is in the 1800s, and this is good, there'll be a point to the story, um, received a box of salamanders um, from Mexico, because uh, he was running the, you know, the, he was keeper of reptiles and amphibians in Paris. And he received this box of six salamanders. And he took care of them, but left it alone for a period of time after a while, because salamanders are, you know, easy to take care of. He came back a few months later, and there were two different kinds of salamanders in that blob. Oh, my God. Yeah. So it's like, did a whole new species come out of thin air? And so what he did is he investigated it, and it turned out a subtle change in development you know, of the offspring of those original salamanders, a subtle change led to a whole different kind of body. And so ever since then, we've used salamanders to study the process of embryology, the process of development from egg to adult. And we can show with salamanders how subtle changes in the timing at which developmental events occur, like in growth and development, um, subtle changes in sort of when and where certain processes in development happen can produce whole new changes in evolution. So it's a wonderful laboratory to understand the link between sort of embryological development and evolution because a simple shift in embryological development can produce changes across the entire body. You don't need to have like 100 different genes changing at the same time. Mm. You can have one subtle change, you know, um, to a, a developmental process just like what Dumeril saw in this box, and have um, lots of different lots of different body parts change simultaneously. So it's a wonderful system to study that. Um, it's a wonderful system to study something else. They they we should be jealous of salamanders. Um, if a salamander loses a limb, if it's bitten off by a competitor or we cut it off or what have you, that limb grows back. That limb grows back. All the muscles all the bones, all the nerves, all the blood vessels, the skin, it comes back almost you know, 90 to 100% fidelity, depending on... You know, so we must have spent a lot of time trying to figure out how they do it. That's correct. And I think now we have the molecular tools, the DNA-based tools, those sorts of things to really get at it, to ask the question, you know, what happens when they get that cut? What do the cells do? How do they know to rebuild you know, a whole limb? And importantly, what's missing in us that we can't do that and why, yeah. you know? And so 
salamanders give us access to those kinds of questions, which I think are increasingly important, which will may have some real clinical you know utility in humans yeah. if we can recapitulate that process in some way. Um, we're a long way from doing that, but if we can recapitulate that process in some way, it would be really a, a big deal. Because we only, you know, if you if you lose a body part, we heal the wound, but we don't regrow the appendage in most cases. Some organs do, but most don't. Are there many other animals that do the same thing, reconstituting parts of their body? Yeah. Uh, some fish, a lot of fish do it with their fins, uh, so it turns out some of those will do it. Do we find the ways in which they do it are all similar, or are they all different? That's exactly the hunt that's going on now. So what people are doing is they're looking for similarities and differences in the way these different creatures regrow appendages mm -hmm. or organs after damage. Looking at it at the, at the genetic level, that is asking the question, what genes are turned on and off when the wound is healing? Um, what do the cells do? How do they divide? How do they rebuild the organs? turns out there's a lot of similarities. Um, uh, there, there are differences too, but some of the similarities are really kind of interesting. That is, there'll be when you have a, a when you cut off an, a salamander limb or they lose it to you know, a, a, a creature that bites it off, um, they'll get a cap of cells on top of that uh, stump that's left, and it's that cap of cells that have all the information to build mm, a new limb. That's so exciting. So, isn't it? And then some, and some fish have that as well. So then we have to ask the question, and that's what a number of labs around the world actually are doing right now. Are they asking the question, well, what's going on that cap, in that cap of cells? You know, how, are, how does it contain that information to build a whole new organ? You know? Um, you know, the appropriate question with salamanders is, you know, yeah, we can cut off their limbs, but how do they even, why do they die? Because they, they, can, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> they can regenerate their, their spinal column, they can regenerate their hearts, they can regenerate lungs, they can regenerate everything. I guess it's hard to see if they can regenerate a brain. If you take the brain yeah, out. Yeah, no, it'd be tough. Yeah. That would be a tough one. But, you know, certain parts of the neural system, their nervous system can regenerate, oh. you know, so, and that would be, you know, if we could solve that problem, that would be, you know, enormous for so many populations. When I picture that box of salamanders being opened a little while later and there's a whole new bunch, new kind of salamander in there, it makes me think of Darwin's notion. I think he said all evolution takes place very slowly. Does the salamander story contradict that, throw light on it in any way, or is it not the same thing he was talking about? No, it does contradict it a little bit. You can have pretty dramatic changes through subtle changes in development. So not all change has to be slow, uh, although most of it is. The thing about it is, is, like, is, is this, is you can have slow change at the level of genetics. That is simple mutation, nothing too, nothing too crazy. But that can translate to big changes at the level of anatomy. That is, if, if some of those genes that are changing gradually affect a developmental process, you know, the way an organ is built, the recipe by which bodies are built, they can have huge effects on the, um, on the, or on the organism. So, you know, Darwin, you know, really did push gradualism, this, this theory of very slow, gradual change. In, in, in situations like salamanders, that's not necessarily the case. You can have a simple change at the level of genetics or a simple change at the level of embryos, you know, how they are built, that has just dramatic impacts on what the body looks like. You know, so if I was to show you the two salamanders in Dumouriel's box from 1861, they look dramatically different. You know, one has these gills that project from the side of the head, 
you know, a tail that's aquatic and big flappy tail. The other is none of that stuff is purely terrestrial. I mean, there are two different kinds of salamanders, and that's just from a simple tweak in development. So yeah, that would definitely go a count, run counter to this gradual notion of the, of Darwinian change. You're such a good writer, and you're so important as a scientist. How do you manage to do both? What drew you to writing? Yeah, what happened was uh, my father was a writer. He was a mystery thriller writer. And I grew up in a family with, which had a, a real sort of love of the written word. But, you know, what happened with me was when I first started to write Your Inner Fish, which, which was my first effort at scientific communication using the written word, I felt liberated. I felt free. I was so used to writing scientific papers, which was like this well-scripted dance where every step and every movement of your limb was well-defined. Intro, materials and methods, results. All of a sudden, when I was writing uh, you know, for the general public, there were no rules. It was really communicate. You know, communicate and connect with people. And so it was just, it always became about not really writing as much as connecting. And, the, um, and I felt so free when I was doing it. Uh, and it's not to say it was easy, and it never is. It still isn't easy. But it's that moment when you really feel you've connected with something deep in yourself that may be something deep in somebody else is actually a beautiful moment. And so I, I, I like to carry that with me as I, as, as I write. Had you picked up techniques of storytelling from your father? Because it interests me that when you began writing books that were not technical scientific books that would find their way into the hands of fellow scientists mostly, you felt liberated. I did. Um, very often a scientist facing the opportunity to tell an emotional story feels blocked rather than liberated. I felt liberated because the, um, the emotions I was feeling as a scientist I think were relevant. You know, the, the fear and the expectation of, of, you know, of, of looking for Tiktaalik for six years and other things, just being a scientist, you know, failing a lot and learn, trying to learn from failures. And sometimes not, just sometimes it's just pure failure, but a lot of times we try to learn from it. But telling those stories was, was really kind of critical. And for learning from my dad was a big deal because, you know, he had an ear for the a cliffhanger. He had an ear for how to structure a paragraph in such a way that you want to read the next paragraph. Yeah, and that's true sentence by sentence for me. I want to end the sentence so that when you pick up the beginning of the next sentence, you don't start in the middle of something else. Did you find that to be true too? Oh, it's very much true. And so that happens for me in the editing, not the writing as much. You know, in the writing, I just throw stuff down, you know, and I'm telling stories and I just, I write large and then uh, very full and then I'll edit it to a lot tighter with, with cliffhangers in there. But I'm all, but when I edit, I'm really kind of looking for that. And then I'm looking for that sentence and paragraph structure. And sometimes it's a tone too, you know, how you use lists, how you use adjectives, you know, how you uh, have a tone and a pace to the sentence. So I like sometimes when I'll write, I'll, if it's an important paragraph, I'll read it out loud, you know, and I'll see how it sounds to my ear by me saying it. Um, and sometimes that'll give me a sense of, of how I've, you know, set the pace of the, of the paragraph, um, or even sometimes it's only a sentence, but um, I'll do that. Um, I like reading great writers. You know, that's always huge. Hemingway, I just can read Hemingway a lot because <laughs> you can't remove a 
comma in, in some of his short stories and have it make sense anymore. And so I, um, you know, I, so, uh, J.D. Salinger is another that I, you know, I, I'd read, you know, because they're tight, you know, and, and they can convey a whole image with relatively spare prose. And I love that, I love spare things, you know, that way. So Yeah, you, you, I, you talk about writing so beautifully as well. I think we've we've run out of time for this conversation, but we always end our show with seven quick questions that are sort of generally in the area of communication. Are you are you game? I'd love to, of course. Give me Great. lay it on. Regardless of your lifelong effort in the work you do, what do you wish you really understood? Uh, the origin of life. Hmm. How living things came from how came from non living things. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? I show them, don't tell them. How do you do that? I usually try to lay out, here's what the world looks like, and let them interpret it. I mean, the more I tell them, the less likely they're going to change their mind. <laughs> I've noticed that. You know? yeah. <laughs> so I keep on going back to my sixth grade teacher who said basically, show, don't tell. So I go back, always go to show, don't tell. <laughs> okay, next question. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Uh, you know, like at a seminar, I'll get asked, I, I will get this asked a lot, actually, and it's a very strange one, is what is my favorite food? I don't know why, why food always comes up in a public seminar. Well, I'll tell you it, why. <laughs> I was almost going to ask you the same thing, but a different version. Because you've gotten so close to fish, do you actually eat them? <laughs> I do eat sushi, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and when I did the book tour for Your Inner Fish, I had sushi pretty much every meal. I tell Fortunately, you, I, I saw how smart octopuses are a couple of times and I, I can't eat them anymore. Likewise, I've stopped, I've, I used to eat this sushi maybe 20 years ago, but not a sentiment being like that, no. Yeah, it's like, it almost feels like cannibalism, you know. <laughs> no, it's amazing what they're capable they're of. They're so smart. Okay, next question. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Ooh, I'm not, I'm very poor at that because uh, I happen to be, the compulsive talker. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I mean, I, I see a, some brethren there. I, I know what well, they're maybe, going do through. Well, maybe do you get any tips from the people who are trying to stop you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I should take some notes. Uh, try to say something interesting that stops them in their tracks. Yeah. Okay, let's say you're at... I need a bright, shiny thing for them. Something shiny to right, stop them talking. Yeah, right. <laughs> Let's say you're at a dinner table when that comes back again and you're sitting next to someone you don't know. How do you strike up a really authentic conversation with that person? Well, you know, it's funny. The, the best way to uh, strike up a great conversation is to be interested in people mm. and to be interested in their history. And so I love to ask about history for people. I, so if I'm sitting with somebody and I, you know, it's, let's say they're in the financial industry, you know, how did you get into that? What was, what's your, you know, what, what brought you there? And, you know, having people talk about their in history and their, and their, uh, their past and what, how it brought them today really opens up a world of possibilities because you learn about them. But then it keys into things in you, and you find some connections that you might not have found otherwise. So the paleontologist in me is always looking for history, <laughs> uh, and, and that includes in conversations. Um, and uh, that's, that's, for me, has always been a very powerful, I don't want to call it a tool, it's just a reflex, um, that has always produced some, some amazing conversations with people. Great. What gives you confidence? Um... Ideas. Uh, for me, you know, so the confidence it took six years to find um, in, in TikTok was we believed in our ideas. 
And uh, I felt very strongly that we were on the right path. Um, I get confidence from the group I'm in. I don't have it always myself. I always work in teams. You know, when I'm in the field, whether in Antarctica or in the Arctic, if I'm with a team of people and we, we're there to support each other, uh, I'll be down some days when others are up. Others will be up when I'm down. Or otherwise, around, they'll, they'll be down when I'm up. Um, and we can pull them as a team together. So I think there's the social piece, which is teamwork. But there's also the, a belief in the power of ideas, because mm. okay, that's been the history of our species. Okay, final question. What book changed your life? Uh, I would t be tempted to say Darwin, but that'd be wrong. Uh, it was Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. Um, the, I was in college reading, taking a Russian history course, Russian literature course. And I was in it because it was a, a requirement. Um, I had to take a like, distributional requirement. I couldn't get in the class I wanted, so I took this course. And I remember reading these Russian novelists, you know, Turgenev and, and Dostoevsky and uh, Pushkin for poetry, and it changed my life. It changed the way I see things. It changed the way I see the relationship between you know, psychology and science and art. I mean, it opened up a whole world to me that I was invisible before. So I, yeah, and then I got into existential philosophy, and I was a, that was a rabbit hole for a couple of years. But it was really, uh, I carry that with me, and I carry that with me for a number of, of reasons. One is life-changing moments are typically unplanned and happen in the context of something you didn't expect. I did not expect this course that I just happened to get into because I was closed out of every one, every other, every other one would open my mind to a whole new world of things. That's so, so interesting. I, I carry that can, you, can you give me an example of how it changed the way you approached a specific thing in your life? Yeah, and it's something I knew about before, and it seems trivial when I lay it out this way. But it's like everything's a two-edged sword. Everything has an impact, plot positive and minus, plus and minus. And, you know, all human behavior is that way. Every decision we make, um, it, it cuts every way. And so that's one of the things that Dostoevsky talks about a lot in the book is, you know, things cut both ways. And so when I approach anything nowadays, any decision I have to make, I try to think about how it cuts both ways. Well... This has been wonderful. I'm so grateful to you for spending this time. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. Our thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring both Clear and Vivid and our sister series, Science Clear and Vivid. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to the advancement of science for the benefit of humanity. Neil Shubin is professor of organismal biology and anatomy at the University of Chicago. His book describing his discovery of Tiktaalik is titled Your Inner Fish, and it was made into an award-winning PBS series of the same name. His most recent book is Some Assembly Required. Decoding 4 Billion Years of Life, From Ancient Fossils to DNA. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, 
You can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. This is the last episode of season 12 of Clear and Vivid, but season 13 is just around the corner. Check in next week when executive producer Graham Chet and I share some moments from our future episodes, including this one from the season's first guest, the wonderful Helen Mirren. I think so much of acting in front of a camera is actually your relationship with the crew, that you get to feel that you're a part of a whole dish of many ingredients and you're you're one of the ingredients but an important ingredient but you're not the only ingredient and now when I walk on a film set I was always sort of I I didn't quite know who did what or who was who or you know and and I felt shy and embarrassed on a film set Um, and now I walk on a film set and I feel I know who's who and I know how to relate to people and I don't know I, I just found that was a very important part of the process. Helen Mirren, in just two weeks, on Clear and Vivid. Meanwhile, on our other podcast, Science Clear and Vivid, I talk with Alex Schnell. She recently repeated a version of the famous marshmallow test, in which children who can resist the immediate temptation of one marshmallow get more if they can wait. Except that Alex didn't do the test with children. She did it with cuttlefish. She was inspired by a particular giant female cuttlefish named Franklin, who would spray her with water every morning when she came into the lab. Franklin, the cuttlefish, she had a really frequent habit of drenching me in the morning when I walked past, uh, and she only squirted me in the morning when experiments were taking place, but would refrain from squirting at me in the evening when I would be in the lab to feed her dinner. So I guess the selective squirting made me wonder whether the cuttlefish had simply learnt to associate my morning visits with something she didn't like, or whether there was an element of self-control and planning involved. And I guess the self-control answered that, that they do have the capacity to exert self-control, was very surprising. I know what you're thinking. How do you do the marshmallow test with cuttlefish? Well, to find out and to explore the implications of a cuttlefish having self-control... Listen in on Thursday to Science, Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.